Reporting from John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan, my name is Daria Lisa Avila Chevalier. And I'm Nick Rodrigo. This is They Are Just Deportees, an innovative new podcast series from the social anatomy of the deportation regime. On today's episode, we speak with Ramzi Kasim, a professor of law at the City University of New York and the co-director of the Immigrant and Non-Citizen Rights and Clear Clinic on the relationship between the U.S. Immigration Enforcement Nexus and the U.S. Global and Domestic War on Terror. Today to discuss immigration and the war on terror is Ramzi Kassam. Ramzi Kassam is the founding director of CLEAR. He is a professor of law at the City University of New York, where he also co-directs the Immigrant and Non-Citizen Rights Clinic. With his students, colleagues, and co-counsel, he represents prisoners of various nationalities held at Guantanamo Bay and other secret or disclosed American facilities worldwide. New Yorkers and others, and others of all stripes who find themselves in the crosshairs of the sprawling U.S. security state, as well as immigrants and asylum seekers. Ramzi has litigated uh, criminal constitutional, immigrant, constitutional immigration, civil rights, wartime detention, and war crime cases at all levels of the federal judiciary. Before military commissions and international tribunals, and in various administrative proceedings, before joining the CUNY Law Faculty, Ramzi taught at Yale and Fordham. His interests include issues of the intersection of law and security, the legal and policy responses to the September 11th attacks, and other real or perceived national security crises, policing and surveillance, the rights of minorities and non-citizens, and international humanitarian law. Ramzi is a graduate of Columbia College and holds law degrees from Columbia Law School, where he was senior editor of the Columbia Law Review and from the Sorbonne? Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to They Were Ju- They Are Just Deportees. Um, so I just want to get a little bit into your background. How did you get into this field of law? Um, thank you so much for having me, uh, Darylisa. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to continue this conversation that we've been having in other contexts here today. Um, I uh, I started. Um, I mean, I guess how did I get into this line of work? I uh, I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, much less like a three or five year plan as many of my colleagues did when I was going through college and law school. Uh, I, had a, I had some kind of vision of what I wanted to do, but then when I was in law school uh, was when 9-11 happened and, um, and I was in New York. And I think from there, uh, it sort of felt more like, um, I guess, an obligation or a duty at that point, um, seeing what was happening around me to people that I knew and cared about, uh, seeing what was happening um, in the communities that, that I love, that I was a part of. Um, so that's sort of what drew me in the direction of this work. Um, when I graduated from law school, I mean, I knew I wanted to do criminal defense work. I wasn't trying to do any, anything else. Um, I worked uh, doing mostly exoneration and post-exoneration work. My, my clients for my first two years in practice were mostly black men, maybe a couple of uh, poor white men as well who had been ensnared in the criminal justice system nationwide. Uh, but as I was doing that, I was trying to figure out a way to work uh, with and in support of, uh, you know, various Muslim-identified communities mm-hmm. that had come into the crosshairs of the, you know, so-called security state, um, including, uh, you, you know, Guantanamo defense work, mm-hmm. as I was following that pretty much from the, the day that the prison camps opened on January 11th, 2002. Um, so that's that's pretty much how I 
went into this uh, line of work. It's also how I got into teaching. It wasn't my mm -hmm. intention to to be an academic or uh, or to, to join a law faculty, but um, it was a time when I think a lot of the organizations that were doing this work were, uh, I, I don't know, just to use shorthand, um, pretty white dominated and white led, mm -hmm. and it was very hard for right. um, you know people of color to to you know find work, um, and so. Um, and so I just, by happenstance, met somebody who was working in a clinic uh, at Fordham Law School and who was willing to give me a break. And she, she brought me on as an adjunct. And she said, you know, if I co-teach her clinic, her criminal defense clinic with her, the law school would uh, underwrite the expenses of uh, our Guantanamo defense work. Mm -hmm. And that was my main uh, sort of concern because my, my bosses at my other job were like, yeah, sure, you can do it as long as you carry your workload right. uh, and as long as you pay for it. And I was making like 30000 a year at the time living in New York City. So right. I wasn't able to pay for it on my own. And so being able to work at Fordham as an adjunct uh, kind of gave me um, that opening to, to start taking on that work. And that's also how I got into teaching. Yeah, and, and that's obviously led to you doing things like the Immigrant Non-Citizen Rights Clinic, CUNY and CLEAR, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the Immigrant Non-Citizen Rights Clinic is actually one of the oldest immigration uh, clinics in the country, and I should say immigration, immigrant defense clinics. Mm -hmm. we, we, we don't do any kind of like prosecution externships or anything like that uh, on principle. Um, so it's a pre-existing program that predates my arrival on the CUNY law faculty. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the clinic has changed since I've joined the faculty and I've uh, taken over the directorship of the clinic, which I now co-direct with my colleague, Professor Nermina Restu. Um, and our clinic is unique and you know, compared to other immigration clinics in the country, if you if you sort of like survey the land, you'll find that a lot of immigration clinics do purely like affirmative asylum mm -hmm. cases because those are less complicated; right. they're more predictable. A lot of immigration clinics don't do detained work. A lot of immigration clinics don't work at the border. They don't work. They certainly don't work beyond the border. Um, our clinic, um, on principle, spans the full spectrum, and so we work with non-citizens who are within the United States, whether they're affirmatively applying for asylum, for example, or they're fighting deportation in the immigration court, whether they're detained or non-detained. And we had the pleasure of working with you on Abdi Muhammad's case. Uh, he was detained in New Jersey and fighting deportation on um, for a very long time there and was successful, yeah. thanks in no small part to your support and the support of other organizers. Um, uh, but we also work with folks at the border, like Abdi, for example, mm -hmm. who was detained as a quote-unquote arriving alien. And I put that right. in quotes because we, we question, um, you know, that sort of distancing and demonizing and otherizing language, uh, like the word alien that's used throughout mm -hmm. the immigration statutes and case law in the United States. Um, and uniquely, we work with non-citizens who are being imprisoned, incarcerated outside of the United States border, like uh, uh, the non-citizen Arab Muslim males who are who have been held at Guantanamo without char charge or fair process, and our clinic has a record um, of um, you know working f towards the release of um, at this point seven men uh, mm -hmm. from the prison at Guantanamo and a similar prison at Bagram. And the government's logic in those cases is that because they are not citizens of the United States, they are entitled to fewer rights, and because they're being held beyond the border. And so, by by design, our clinic straddles that full spectrum mm -hmm. because there is a commonality there. Um, and um, and so that that's the Immigrant Non-Citizen Rights Clinic. The CLEAR Project has a very different mission. We, we work at the intersection of law and security, and uh, we work in support of communities and movements uh, that are 
on the receiving end of policies that are justified in the name of security. And so that's basically any expression of the sprawling U.S. national security state. It would include the FBI showing up at somebody's doorstep at 1 a.m. to question them about what's being said in their organizing circle, uh, what's being said in their mosque. Uh, it includes people being pressured into becoming informants. Um, it includes watch listing. Uh, it includes a combination of those things. We've mm -hmm. represented men who were placed on the no-fly list in retaliation for refusing to become informants. It also includes delays in uh, applications for immigration benefits that people are entitled to, but that are being delayed, <coughs> that are being delayed or denied in the name of security. Mm -hmm. um, and it also includes things as extreme as passport confiscation, denaturalization. On you know, through Clear, we've done a lot of work um, around surveillance uh, again in support of various movements that have wanted to push back and reshape. Uh, what local law enforcement like the NYPD, what the FBI is doing mm -hmm. by way of surveillance. And that takes different forms from like the use of informants to electronic surveillance to like the NYPD's previously secret like Muslim surveillance program, which, um, you know, at, at the behest of a table of community-based organizations, um, CLEAR was involved in pushing back against in a, very, in a variety of ways, like putting forward a report that collected first-person reports to counter the claim by the city that like surveillance was harmless. And so mm. we put out uh, the Mapping Muslims report that detailed the harms of surveillance, right. uh, but also through litigation because the city was also saying, hey, this is legal, this is constitutional. And so uh, we sued, and, and as a result of that suit, there was an unprecedented set of restraints um, like imposed, the first to be imposed in the post-9-11 era on any kind of law enforcement agency when it comes to its ability to spy on like organizing um, and so, um, so that's another big area of our work. But any manifestation of the security state um, is, is pretty much where, where you'll find CLEAR trying to work with the communities and movements that are most directly affected. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are familiar to some extent um, with the impact of surveillance on, on Muslim communities. Um, have you seen these effects on non-Muslim immigrant communities? How, how widely is this discussed? Like, um, what would you say are some of the origins of the surveillance regime? regime? Um, and like, who who's next? Yeah, like who who will be impacted by this? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've always said that like, whenever you have such a massive investment, and we would say overinvestment of resources, human and material, into any kind of um, you know security apparatus or project, that to sort of justify its own existence, that apparatus is naturally going to migrate to mm. demographics other than the original target demographic. Right. So even though you know, this particular variation of the system was kind of built out again to focus on Muslim-identified mm -hmm. communities and individuals. Um, it has, you know, as, as we could see as, as far back as 2009 when, when CLEAR was started, it has migrated to other demographics. And so in the last few years, you know, we've had more and more clients. I mean, the majority of our clients are still Muslim-identified, mm -hmm. but we've had more and more clients in the last, I would say, like three, four years uh, who have walked in who are not Muslim at all. They, they might be non-Muslim Black Lives Matter activists, for example. They might mm -hmm. be uh, environmental rights activists, animal rights activists, LGBTQ right. activists, journalists, um, folks who are being targeted in many of the same ways that our clients have been targeted. And they come to CLEAR because we've developed tools right. of resistance that other organizations don't have as much experience with. But things like having your electronics seized at the airport, for example. I mean, we, you know, we brought a lawsuit in Brooklyn in federal court that was the first time that a judge recognized that you know, something that we all take to be obvious, which is that, like, our phones and our laptops are not the equivalent of our suitcases. Right. But the government's position in court was that, 
yeah, we can search the contents of a phone and a laptop just like we can open up a suitcase. Mm. Uh, but of course, you know, we don't pack all of our correspondence in a suitcase. We don't have all of our private right. photos in a suitcase. We don't. So, but that takes, so, so we've been involved in all of that. And we're seeing a lot of folks who are not even immigrants, right? I mean, mm. a, lot of the, a lot of our clients are citizens. Uh, but of course, immigrants are particularly vulnerable and particularly impacted. And, and so to continue to talk about the border, just to make it concrete, um, for example, at, at an international border or a place that the United States considers to be an international border, like JFK, if you're arriving from an international mm -hmm. flight, if you're a U.S. citizen or green card holder, you, you bring a fair amount of immigration privilege and power into that space, and you can stand on, on your rights and say, no, I'm not going to give you the password to my, to my laptop or to my phone. I'm just not going to consent to that kind of search. But if you're in a more vulnerable position, if you're a visa holder, mm -hmm. then, you know, that customs and border protection officer has the discretion to say, well, if you don't let me into your phone, I'm going to deny you admission to the United States and send you back. Um, and so it's inflected by right. the amount, the degree of immigration privilege you bring into the space. Um, but, but I guess, you know, there's a longer history here. I mean, I, you know, a mistake that I think a lot of activists and academics and certainly commentators and sort of public discourse make us to kind of start the narrative with 9-11. Mm. The reality is that, you know, these, you know, surveillance um, has has been around for right. an extremely, you know, for as long as the United States has been around. And um, marginalized communities, communities that have been marginalized and excluded uh, and oppressed um, by the dominant group in this country uh, have used various forms of surveillance going back to, um, you know, the creation of the United States and even beyond that, even um, sort of, uh, but prior to that, if we want to just start with the 20th century, um, you know, there's various groups that were um, racialized and uh, demonized and and and, f and focused on uh, by law enforcement using various surveillance tools. You could look to the NYPD if we're going to start locally, and how mm -hmm. they they began uh, with the Red Squads that focused on. Um, you know, Jewish-identified, mm -hmm. um, you know, left-wing communist and socialist activists here in New York City, labor activists, how they focused on Italian-identified so-called anarchists. Um, you could take that all the way up to the joint efforts of the NYPD and, and federal law enforcement with COINTELPRO mm -hmm. to infiltrate and disrupt uh, civil rights organizations and the Black Panthers, like, through the 70s and even into the 80s. Right. Um, so it's, it's variations on, on that much older theme that we're seeing today. Uh, but it is it is a very significant difference in degree because of the means that are now at the disposal yeah. of and the systems that are at the disposal of the government. And w you mentioned some of like the practices of surveillance that I think not everyone is familiar with, um, and some of like the legal technicalities of why you know like a phone is not the same as like what you pack in a suitcase. Yeah. Um, but could you please elaborate some more on like what are some some surveillance pra surveillance practices that folks are just generally not aware of? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think a big one is uh, is a program like Secure Communities, like especially mm -hmm. if we're talking about, yeah. um, you know, the rights of immigrants in this country. Uh, in 2008, so mind you, this was under the Obama administration, sorry, under the Bush administration immediately prior to Obama, but Obama embraced this program uh, and expanded it, as with many other programs. Unfortunately, that's a theme. But in 2008, Secure Communities is created, and the idea there is, um, for example, if the NYPD makes an arrest, the typical sort of local law enforcement practice, including the NYPD, which is the country's largest police force, but any other police force that you can think of in the United States, if they book somebody, they would um, forward those fingerprints um, and to have them checked against 
um, a nationwide FBI database. And the idea there is to, is to see if this person has, or the sort of proffered law enforcement rationale, is to see if this person has any you know, outstanding warrants for their arrests mm-hmm. elsewhere beyond like the county where they were right. processed. Um, in 2008, with Secure Communities, the idea was, well, let's, let's automate uh, one additional step, which is you know, once that local law enforcement agency sends those prints up to the FBI database, let's then automate sharing of those databases, uh, of those fingerprints between the FBI database and a DHS database, Department mm-hmm. of Homeland Security. The reason they wanted to add that link to the chain is to facilitate and make more seamless immigration enforcement. So to see if anybody had a final order of deportation against them or, or anything else that marked them as uh, a non-citizen that would be vulnerable to deportation, right, as a result yeah. of the original arrest. So once that linkage was created, uh, obviously, like, it, it opened up a huge area of exposure and vulnerability for, for immigrants in the United States who came into contact with the criminal justice system. So that system was basically um, up and running from 2008 through November of 2014. So that's Bush administration's going through the first term of the Obama administration and into the second term of the Obama administration. It was suspended in November of 2014, uh, but Trump um, reinstated it by executive order in January 2017, pretty much as soon as he took office. So um, even accounting that period of suspension, in the last 10 years since it was created, it has resulted in the deportation of over 360,000 um, non-citizens from the United States. So that program alone right. uh, had that result. So I think I think that's kind of where I would start the conversation about like the the, the, the surveillance apparatus and the security apparatus and how um, how it's changed, you know, since 9/11 um, in ways that that make immigrants even more vulnerable to being uh, ripped apart from their families and their communities. And we're talking about people, obviously who have ties to this country, who, uh, who oftentimes have, have grown up here yeah. um, without, without papers. And is there anything that folks can do to combat a program like this? Like, I'm just thinking, like, yeah. how do people safeguard themselves from, like, is it just try not to get arrested or, like? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a range of, like, sort of security practices or self-defense practices, really, yeah. that, um, you know, th- basic things like, if you're a non-citizen not carrying, um, you know, uh, like if, if you're being questioned about where you're from, mm-hmm. even, even a question as basic as, hey, where are you from? Which is socially like maybe one of the first questions you might get right. in Especially any kind of interaction. Especially if you're a person of color. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Like, and so um, in, a, in an interaction with somebody who you know to be um, a, a federal official, mm-hmm. um, as a matter of immigration law, if, if, an, if an ICE agent asks you where you're from and you casually say, well, you know, I was born in Dakar or I'm mm-hmm. from Dakar, as a matter of immigration law, right, like that creates a presumption that um, you're a non-citizen and now the burden is on you legally to prove that you have a right to be in this country. Mm-hmm. So things as basic as that, as like not answering those kinds of questions, um, you know, if you have it, if you have papers that prove your, your status, uh, sure, carrying a copy of those papers on you are a good idea. Otherwise, uh, you know, but the general practice, honestly, that we recommend is that New York, New York law does not require us to have ID on us. Mm-hmm. And so we say, look, if, 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 you're, 
if you think you might be subject to a program like stop and frisk, for example, if, if you're being stopped all the time or you see people being stopped in your neighborhood all the time, it might be a good idea to have some form of mm -hmm. identification on you. But it should be minimally, it should have a minimum of information. It could be a library card, anything that has right. your name and photo. The reason we say that is that even though you're not legally required to have ID, um, the NYPD is in the practice of taking people to the precinct for identification purposes mm -hmm. if they don't have ID on them. They don't always do it, but they sometimes do it. And so you don't want to put yourself at risk right. of that. Carry a gym card or a library card or, or an IDNYC, something that's minimally identifying. You don't have to you know, yeah. carry your passport or your green card on you or whatever it is that you, that you have by way of identification, and you, and you shouldn't. Um, so there are those kinds of self-defense steps that you could take, but thinking more big picture, I think the kind of popular mobilization that then translated to like, um, you know, policy pressure that led to the suspension of the program under the second term of the Obama administration in mm -hmm. 2014 is something that, you know, could be replicated and expanded so that the program is abolished, um, you know, and with, with, with shifting political winds, that might be possible. But being um, opportunistic about that, I guess, and looking for an opportunity to roll it back in that way. I, I think I think we need that sort of radical change yeah. uh, because, because a system like secure communities, um, one, can't be reformed, and two, should not be left dormant for mm -hmm. the next uh, president to reactivate at his or her whim. Yeah. Um, on sort of the topic of resistance, um, how, as, a, as an attorney, do you use the law creatively um, to prevent um, someone, say, from being deported or even overreach by law enforcement um, into the communities that you've, you've spoken about. I know that a lot of um, criminal defense attorneys um, have deployed and have developed quite creative means. Um, and also there's obviously, the, I mean, the classic uses of the Convention Against Torture as a way to stop someone being deported to a country where they might not be able to have mm -hmm. correct amount of insulin, for example, or mm -hmm. something like that. Or, or something. So I'm wondering within the sort of civil civil liberties framework, how you how you guys creatively deploy? Yeah, I mean, I I, th I think it really depends on the the perspective that you bring to to your legal work. Um, for myself and my colleagues and our students uh, at Clear and in the Immigrant Non Citizen Rights Clinic, um, we start um, from the position that um, that the law is not only limited. Uh, but that the law is far more often um, an instrument of oppression than it is uh, a path to liberation. And that for the people that we work for and with, um, that's been their experience of the law. Um, and so we, and, and, and I say that because I think a lot of, a lot of lawyers and unfortunately a lot of activists and, um, have, a, have a very different starting point where there's an assumption fed by popular culture or fed by sort of the, the national mythology, there's an assumption that, uh, you know, you'll find salvation mm. through the courts. Yeah. And that's very rarely the case in the United States. Uh, people were shocked that the Supreme Court signed off on the Muslim ban, for example. But we, you know, when, when we're having those conversations with our students who may be less politically aware, we always start by reminding them that it's the same Supreme Court that signed off on slavery, that mm. signed exactly. off on the disposition, yeah. dispossession of yeah. the American natives. And so... Um, or the natives here, I shouldn't say the American natives because that, that, that's already nomenclature um, that, that, that is rejected, I think, by a lot of native activists. Um, so, f so for us, um, you know, I can give a couple of examples. Like when we had a, we had a case recently at Clear that, that, that Daria and other activists at the time um, supported on uh, where we had an individual who was undocumented 
um, who, uh, who was sitting at home. And uh, after midnight, the FBI and ICE and NYPD showed up and they took him in for questioning and they basically told him, look, you're undocumented. Uh, we can either have you deported or you can work for us as an informant and stay with your family and feed your family. And so he took that. And for a couple of years, that's what he did. They would send him into various mosques. They would ask him like what certain scholars were saying. Um, and uh, he did that until it became unbearable for him. And he approached an activist that we had worked with, a clear came out to them, and that person brought him to us. The, uh, the, we had done these kinds of cases before, taking people out of informancy, but, um, and we don't represent informants who want to remain in that kind of relationship um, at CLEAR. It's sort of a condition to our representation that they want to extricate themselves from mm -hmm. working for the FBI. Uh, but we had done it in a way that I think was far less public in the past. And, and in this instance, I think we, we came to the realization that actually, you know, the government's uh, approach here rests on secrecy and fear, and that the antidote had to be the opposite of that. Um, and, that um, and that there was a lot of room for people to organize and coalesce around him to offer him support um, in, a, in a public and visible way that would deter the FBI from retaliating against him. And so that's what we basically did. I mean, we, you know, he had a meeting with his FBI handlers. Uh, we went to that meeting with him as his legal team, but we were, and he was supported by uh, a group of about a dozen organizers from different organizations, uh, community-based organizations, immigrant rights organizations, police accountability organizations, who sent representatives to be there um, in support of him. Uh, and so th those folks were camped out across the street. We were on the other sidewalk. We told the FBI that he was no longer willing to work for them. And we were bracing ourselves for him being taken into detention and being deported. But I think in large part because the FBI saw, because they literally drove by and saw that there was organizing support for him, that there were people that coalesced around him. Uh, we even had a journalist there who, who wrote a story about it. So the FBI realized, okay, well, this person has legal support. He's got mm -hmm. community support and organizing support. There's visibility to the case. It's been written up in the mainstream media. And, and so I think that... Uh, you know, up until now at least, has deterred them from taking any action against them because they know that there'll be a response. Right. There'll be an organizing response and there'll be a media response. Um, so, so I think that's one approach that's indicative of, the, of, of what we try to do at CLEAR, which, which again embeds the assumption that the law is most often not going to be an answer. It's, 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 it's a tool. It's a way to create pressure. Uh, but we, we don't uh, place our eggs in the basket of, kind of a formal victory through the courts. Um, because that's never been the path to, you know, lasting social change in the United mm -hmm. States. And, and frankly, especially these days, if you look at the composition mm. of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, they just passed, a, they might be passing a bill that will criminalize immigration advocacy, right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of bills that... Um, it's called, uh, I, I pulled it up here. It was called... Uh, the United States versus Sineng Smith, this case, a case that concerns a little-used provision of immigration law that forbids encouraging or inducing an alien, quote-unquote, to mm -hmm. reside in the United States when the encourager knows that person has no legal status. Mm -hmm. And that could be extended to sort of like clamping down on... But I guess, yeah. like you say, this is just uh, cyclical. This happens all the time. Yeah, and, and look, even, even if that sort of doesn't come to pass, uh, the... The main, the main sort of goal behind initiatives like that are, are to mobilize um, like a, a conservative and racist and anti-immigrant base, mm -hmm. right? So it's politically um, uh, profitable yeah. for the administration to, to talk about measures like this, 
even if they don't come to pass. Yeah. But, you know, this administration has been remarkably effective uh, at, um, at attacking immigrants in this country in every conceivable way. I mean, they have people who are solely dedicated to uh, finding the ways in which the administration can go after immigrants because that is politically profitable. And unfortunately, immigration is one area where um, the executive's powers, the president's powers uh, under the laws of the United States are at their maximum. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very easy uh, and cost-free way for mm -hmm. anyone in the White House to score political points with um, you know, a white supremacist right. and racist base, uh, which is very much out there. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your work um, with folks like Guantanamo Bay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Like, who's held there? Like, what are the conditions for folks who are, who are held there? Um, and how do these sites compare to, like, detention centers in the United States? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, probably, like, a deep and long conversation uh, of its own right. You know, the prison at Guantanamo, um, in its current uh, iteration, opened on January 11, 2002. Mm -hmm. um, it's held, over the course of its existence since then, um, between 700 and 800 uh, prisoners. All of them, uh, or almost all of them, have been um, Sunni Muslim males. Uh, I say almost all because I think there were some um, Shia Muslim males who were held there by accident mm -hmm. and then released. Um, they have almost all been citizens of countries other than the United States, and I say almost all because there are people like Yasser Hamdi, for example, who was captured um, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region by the U.S. military post-9-11, brought to Guantanamo, and then the detention, military detention authorities there and intelligence authorities there realized that he was actually a natural-born U.S. citizen who had been mm -hmm. born in Louisiana, and so they moved him from Guantanamo to a naval prison in the continental United States. The, the, the stated purpose of that prison of, in its current form is to hold these non-citizens outside of the border beyond the reach of the courts and of the law. So the original right. vision for Guantanamo was for it to be a law-free zone where all things, all sorts of things would be um, permissible, including torture, including um, you know, detaining people as enemy combatants without charge or fair process indefinitely, potentially for their lifetime. And that was the government's position, starting with the Bush administration, continuing through the Obama administration, and obviously today, the Trump administration. The Immigrant Non-Citizen Rights Clinic that I co-direct has worked towards the liberation of a number of men from Guantanamo successfully. Some of them have been repatriated back to their home countries, um, like um, Algeria and, uh, and Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Others have been resettled. Uh, some of our clients have been resettled in places like Senegal, uh, Uruguay, um, the United Kingdom as refugees. Uh, we, we have uh, clients who remain there today, um, unfortunately, like Moaz al-Alwi, who's a Yemeni national, who's been held there since 2002. He's, not, he's never been charged or tried or convicted of anything. He's one of the quote-unquote forever prisoners that the government claims it can hold as an enemy combatant until the cessation of hostilities. But the problem is we're not talking about a regular conflict. Mm. Right. And so um, when, when hostilities cease is something that the government says only it can say. Right. And, uh, and in a never-ending sort of global, quote-unquote, war on terror, we can see how that can translate to lifelong detention, to a life sentence, effectively. Um, so Mr. Ali has found ways to, to resist and you know, reaffirm his humanity, mainly through his artwork, which, which was uh, banned 
uncensored once uh, once we we put on an art show actually here at John Jay College a few years ago that included works by uh, Mr. Alalwi and other Guantanamo artists and once that happened and it was publicized the Department of Defense responded with a complete shutdown on any art exiting the island and so since then we haven't been able to carry our clients art uh, from Guantanamo I was there a couple of weeks ago I you know I go every two or three months to meet with our clients there and um, and yeah, the, the the mood is overall a dark mood because mm-hmm. um, you know for someone like Mr. Alawi, I was I was telling my students before my trip, um, you know we've represented him when his case was captioned Alawi v. Bush, mm-hmm. and we continued to represent him when it became Alawi v. Obama, and now it's Alawi v. Trump, and so for him, uh, you know he's been there through three presidential administrations, um, and and when I say dark, it's because I think um, one thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that um, when you are um, imprisoned without um, without a sentence, right, with no end in sight, um, a lot of the men that I've represented who have been through some of the most horrendous forms of physical torture that you can imagine at CIA black sites, at Guantanamo, um, when you ask them, as we inevitably have to ask them because of our advocacy work on their behalf, like we have to talk to them about what they've experienced, what they've survived. But when we ask them, okay, well, you know, what's the, what's the single worst thing that you've endured? Not out of any kind of voyeurism, but just because we need to know and, and we need to be able to tell the court or international courts or the media to the extent that we can. What struck me is that even the men who've survived the worst forms of physical torture will inevitably, like to a man, say that the single worst thing they've experienced is not knowing if they'll ever get out and see their parents, their spouses, their children, again, their loved ones. Um, Worse than any kind of physical torture because you're just sitting there, you don't have a sentence. And I used to represent men here in the United States who were convicted and sometimes sentenced to very long sentences or lifelong sentences um, for crimes that they did not commit and that we Mm -hmm. ultimately proved using DNA evidence that they didn't commit. But even for those men... Um, their fate, knowing that they were innocent men in prison, was more tolerable because they kind of knew, okay, well, I'm going to be out in 10 years, or I'm never going to be out. The uncertainty is a form of torture that's been recognized by legal experts, by medical experts, psychological experts. Most importantly, it's the one that's identified as the worst by these men. Um, And so that's an ongoing problem, um, Mm -hmm. not just for these men, but their families, their communities. And it's also when you you consider that the the U.S. government's position is that they can hold anybody as an enemy combatant, um, that, that there's no obstacle to holding a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant. They've just chosen not to. There's a lot of case law out there that says, okay, well, you know, these men um, have or don't have certain rights because they are non-citizens outside the border. And that case law has laid the foundation for all kinds of things that are done to non-U.S. citizens beyond our border in the name of security, from drone strikes to, and, and, and it's being cited in, in cases that involve immigrants at the border, for example, mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, look to the Guantanamo cases. If this is a security threat uh, and somebody's outside the United States, then their rights are fewer. Um, and, and I say that because, like, a lot of agencies that you would think as having to do with immigration have recast their mission, um, you know, using that frame of security. So even something like border, the Border Patrol that, that's responsible, for example, for the U.S.-Mexico border, if you go to their website, their first mission is counterterrorism and preventing um, you know, the uh, entrance of terrorists and weapons of mass destruction into the United States. That didn't used to be their, their, their primary mission, but it's helpful 
for them to assert that as their primary mission because then they can reach for all of these expansive authorities that have been um, created by the Bush administration, preserved and expanded by the Obama administration, and you know are being used across the board by the Trump administration. Um, so Border Patrol is, is one agency that now points to security as its primary mission. Obviously, the Department of Homeland Security, as the name would indicate. The FBI, which used to be primarily a law enforcement uh, investigative agency, is now primarily a national security agency. Uh, so that slide towards the security realm is very deliberate and intentional because it affords these agencies not only access to dollars, but also access to powers and authorities that they didn't have before in the name of security. And they can militarize their, 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 their actions as well. Right? They can militarize their actions and, and personnel. They can justify certain budgets. Um, and, you know, we haven't even really delved, you know, we can, we can talk about for things like, um, you know, since we're trying to focus on surveillance, uh, in connection with immigration, like the collaboration between ICE and mm -hmm. an organization like Palantir, uh, which is a private corporation that was created with seed funding from the CIA. It's a very surveillance and intelligence-focused organization. Um, so there's this unholy alliance between Palantir, um, you know, data aggregating corporations like Thomson Reuters, LexisNexis. Uh, they're creating very powerful algorithmic tools and, and data crunching tools for organizations like ICE to, to fuel uh, the deportation regime and to really create like a data valence state using data that's collected at consulates overseas, using data that's collected at the border. And we're talking here about like biometric information, so like iris prints, fingerprints, um, obviously facial photographs. Uh, we're talking about social media. Mm -hmm. So, you know, under the Trump administration, there's been a generalization and a formalization of this trend that we started to see in the Obama era where you'd show up at a consulate in whatever, pick your country, United Arab Emirates, you're trying to get your visa for the United States, and you're being asked for your social media accounts and handles, mm -hmm. right? So that information is being collected and aggregated with biometric information. Uh, but there's even a proposal now for untrained border patrol agents at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, to collect DNA from anybody that they that they apprehend, um, and so uh, and and that includes asylees. So ima imagine you're a person right. that's fleeing persecution or gender-based violence uh, or partner violence in your home country, and you're coming to the United States seeking safety. Your DNA will be collected. It'll be put into the FBI's combined DNA index system, um, and the ways in which all of that is racial. Right? I mean. It's one thing to say theoretically this is about controlling and surveilling black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. But when you look at that FBI database, already today, 40% of the, the hundreds of thousands, or actually millions of entries in that database, 40% of them uh, are of black people, right? And so, right. Uh, and so you can imagine you know, w if this proposed policy comes to pass and is implemented and is not reversed, uh, you're going to have a database of mostly black and brown people that's going to include DNA, biometrics, social media. Um, and, and you'll be in a place where the government actually knows more about you than you do. Like, I, I've never done Ancestry.com, mm. but if you have my DNA information, you know, you can theoretically figure out what illnesses I am predisposed towards. Mm. Uh, I don't know that stuff. Um, and so these are very powerful tools. Um, there's a lot of talk in this country about the sort of data valence state in China 
and of course, you know, I'm concerned about that, um, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the and the model it sets, and the and the systems that it creates, and the fact that China is exporting those systems to countries mm-hmm. where I've lived and that I care about. But it's happening here, uh, and it's happening even in New York City. I mean, there's a public-private partnership between the NYPD and a lot of corporations um, in New York City where um, you know they're networking their surveillance cameras, and these are very powerful surveillance cameras. Um, so a lot of that is happening in ways that are only slowly beginning to emerge. And I, and I, and I, don't, and I, don't, I don't say this to sort of uh, be conspiratorial about it. I just think the more we're aware of it, the more likely we are mm-hmm. to be able to start to organize against it. Uh, and there are ways to organize, and there are examples. You know, out west, for example, um, in Oakland, um, they created a committee basically to oversee and sign off on. It's a civilian committee that's responsible with overseeing and signing off on any um, acquisition by local police of surveillance technologies. So before the police can go out and buy that drone that was you know, being decommissioned from Iraq or Afghanistan, exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, they have to yeah. get civilian sign-off, which is, which is something we could try to do here in New York City uh, because the NYPD is using drones. Yeah. And so with Communities United for Police Reform, for example, we've, we've had meetings, orga- organizing meetings, where we, we've called the NYPD to task about that and ask them questions about, well, you know, and what, how have you been using these drones? And what they've said so far is, like, it, they've only been used to take photos of, like, crime scenes and accident sites, and, and they have all kinds of rules of, and restrictions. They haven't been tasked by the Intelligence Bureau to follow people on surveillance missions. Not yet. Uh, but potentially, you know, the NYPD isn't acknowledging that there's any kind of line that would prevent right. that from happening. So we just need to be more aware and more active. Yeah, I know organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace are like mm-hmm. pushing campaigns to like end NYPD's cooperation with foreign militaries and their and their techno- like exchanging their technologies, particularly with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just crazy to think how even like local police are gaining access to like these like military. Military um, grades. I was actually yeah. At, yeah, I was actually at uh, an expo in San Antonio uh, earlier this year. It's called the San Antonio Border Security Expo. Mm. And it was basically everyone from DHS coming to meet and discuss how to better inf- enforce the border. Ron Vitiello was there, who was the now, he got dumped out of ICE, but he was, he was prepped by Trump to, to take over the agency. But the three major organizations, uh, so it was it, one room, it was just discussing the discussions on how to enforce the border with people from DHS. And the other side of the room, there were the big border security and um, you know, intelligence uh, manufacturing agencies there, Elbit Systems. BA, BA Systems. Mm-hmm. Albert Systems obviously mm-hmm. is the big one from Israel, and yeah. BA, BA Systems is the big one from, from the United Kingdom. And they were selling basically downgraded, sort of, you know, a couple of models down from Reaper drones, basically, to local law enforcement on the border. And really, really, really gro- um, sort of Orwellian-style facial recognition technology, and they were presenting it as sort of the way in which to enforce the border and better control people that come off over. But that seems like what you're saying is this will have a boomerang effect and come back for regular regular citizens. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, if, if you're interested in, in um, you know, this proposal of, like, DNA collection at the border, my, my, my colleague, the co-director of the Immigrant Non-Citizen Rights Clinic, Professor Nermina Rustu, with a couple of folks who served with her on a city bar committee, recently wrote an op-ed about that in, 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 the, daily, uh, in the Daily News, New York Daily News, I think. Um, it's a really good sort of summary of, of that proposal and its problems. Yeah, and I know... The history of like detention in this country, particularly of of immigrants, is a long one. 
Um, I was reading an article about how in the 80s um, the Reagan administration was trying to draw or did draw up formal blueprints mm -hmm. for detaining Arab Americans um, and Muslim Americans um, in Louisiana. But I was just wondering if you could just like go through a little bit more of this history of like detention and like how it's like changed or if it's just gotten just expanded since 9-11. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we are, um, you know, in this country, I think we're, we're kind of at a at a at a high point, mm -hmm. both in terms of immigration detention and just generally incarceration. Yeah. Right. And um, you know the the fact that like these trends and proposals and ideas predate nine eleven shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, even you know the prison at Guantanamo that we were talking about. You know I said this is kind of like the latest uh, use of that prison, but it, it was used to house um, you know Haitian American migrants or sorry Haitian migrants in the early 90s because, yeah. uh, you know, the policy of the U.S. government was to accept Cubans but exclude Haitians. And the preferred rationale at the time was that Haitians were bringing in um, HIV. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, uh, you know, they, they, they had detained uh, Haitians at the, you know, U.S. Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay for a very long time. That detention was challenged in court. Uh, those challenges were in combination with organizing approaches and media advocacy were successful, um, and ultimately, you know, the Haitians who were held there were either brought to the United States or, or you know, repatriated to Haiti. Um, but that was one of the earlier uses of Guantanamo. And, and when 9-11 happened, people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were pointing to that. They were like, well, you know, we did, you know, we were able right. to do that with Haitians. Why couldn't we do that with whomever we capture in the war on terror? Um, so, I, you know, I think... Um, I think there's a there's a long history of, of uh, detention camps in the United States and practices even worse than than detention camps, uh, extermination practices, genocidal practices, mm -hmm. uh, slavery, uh, perhaps most obviously. Um, you know the way the way in which like these uh, systems reinforce and support um, you know white supremacy, I think, are under theorized still, and so that that I think is a really important. Um, academic project, frankly, for a lot of scholars who who come from um, you know a more leftist analysis uh, of of our current kind of political moment, to to try to bring that out more explicitly, to create language for it, to make it more accessible to to organizers and activists, and 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 ultimately to to reform mainstream culture. Right, yeah. um, that process takes years, but it's an important one. Uh, and, and there are a lot of scholars, you know, up-and-coming scholars, but also established ones who, who are doing work around that. Um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, people often, well, first of all, I think today, for example, if you, look at, if you look at a place like Guantanamo, people are often surprised that it still exists. I think a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that because Obama so publicly declared his intention in 2009 to close the prison, that the prison was actually closed. So a lot of people are surprised that, oh, there's still prisoners there, like, mm. you know, there's still cases. Um, so unless you follow it, it's very easy to think that the problem has been solved. Um, so I don't know. I mean, people will ask me, uh, well, what's going to happen? Is the prison going to close? And I frankly don't know. I mean, when I started representing prisoners there, uh, that was back in 2005 when I was like a very like young attorney. And if you had told me that in 2019 I'd still be doing it, I would have called you crazy. Like I, I had no idea yeah. that, you know, that particular thing would still be ongoing. At the time, I thought it was just so, uh, you know, outrageous and exceptional. And of course, like, yeah. you know, 
my, my grandmother always says, you know, of all the things, you know, that you could do for a living, you chose to, you chose to work at the one place that's, you know, been created to hold like Arab Muslims like you. <laughs> so she's always like, can't you find another line of work? <laughs> um, but um, so I, so I really, I really don't know what the timeline for something like that is going to be. Uh, what I do know is that like our clients who are there still haven't given up as disheartening as um, you know it is to be yeah. there after so many years, um, and their families haven't given up, um, and and maybe through a combination of like continued solidarity and support from organizers and attorneys who are working with them, uh, and maybe uh, you know and and some political change perhaps in Congress or in the White House, there might be some progress made. Um, and the same goes, I think, for a lot of the immigration issues that we're seeing. You know, they were unilaterally put into place by the Trump administration because, again, that is an area where the president has maximum power under mm -hmm. the U.S. legal scheme. Um, and presumably a different president with a different set of priorities and orientations could reverse and limit some of the damage that's been done. Um, but I, But I also think there has to be a lot of affirmative and radical rethinking of immigration in this country. The trend has been since the Reagan administration, and that's why I think it's important that you started with that sort of thinking back to the Reagan administration. The trend has been one towards criminalization of immigration, right? Mm -hmm. Starting in the 80s and getting worse and worse with every decade since. So that trend has to be uh, reversed. It's not a unique moment in U.S. history because even that the, this moment that started in the 80s, there have been similar moments historically with, you know, Chinese exclusion, right. most notably, right? Um, uh, and then back in the 50s, uh, you know, with the focus on the quote-unquote communist threat. Yeah. So there have been eras of, you know, hugely restrictive immigration laws and procedures, and we happen to be in one of them. And, and now the question is, you know, well, how do we mobilize to sort of steer things in the opposite direction and, and sort of exit the era that we're in? Yeah. I'm going to ask the foreign policy question, yeah. I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the war on terror, right, it's a, it's, it was a foreign policy decision that resulted in so many blunders, starting mm. with the quote-unquote police action in Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq and the um, Guantanamo Bay detention regime, which you, you've so eruditely laid out. Um, but I think, like, the, the point that we've made on history is, right, the, the, the war on terror sort of predates... 9-11 and we can look back even to the the relationship between the United States and Iran mm -hmm. and following the um, the embassy situation the embassy siege mm -hmm. um, Iranian students were threatened tens of thousands of Iranian students were threatened of being deported mm -hmm. after that and then during the sanctions regime against Iraq the movement the movement of Iraqis into, into, into this country was severely restricted so I'm wondering how does the United States's sort of foreign policy, like ruinous foreign policy in the Middle East, have a blowback on immigrant communities here. Their abili ability, yeah. maybe, to send remittances back, to even just being able to, um, you know, politically express themselves. The United States is like labeled all of these non-state actors in the region as as, as terror organizations or states as sponsors mm. of terrorism. I'm wondering how, yeah, that sort of has a blowback on the community. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge. Um that's a really important nexus that you're that you're surfacing there. I mean, I think um, so. You know, a lot of time. I think so. The, maybe one way to come at this is there are these um, silos in the sort of rights advocacy community, 
for lack of a better term, that I think are artificial silos between, you know, those who advocate on behalf of people who are overseas and those who focus on what's happening within the United States. And I think of these as artificial cleavages because from the U.S. government's perspective, it's a single continuum. Mm. They're, they're looking at it in a very holistic way, and so it behooves those of us on the other side who are um, you know, positioned in resistance to these policies and practices to look at it holistically as well. And so you know, to my mind, um, you know, there's a direct connection between you know, the policing of the over-policing and surveillance of Muslim-identified communities here in the United States and um, the government's foreign policy agenda in countries uh, that people in those communities hail from. Um, the, the, the narrative um, of um, the security state that's being reinforced in various ways, you know, when the FBI director appears before Congress and says, you know, our priority is counterterrorism and the security threat is alive and well uh, from al-Qaeda, from ISIS, whatever it is. Um, these predatory prosecutions, you know, these so-called terrorism sting cases that are bandied about very loudly by the U.S. government. Whenever something happens, you know, threat averted, terrorist plot foiled is the headline in many newspapers. All of that is in service of a foreign policy agenda, right? Because all of that helps to justify, in the eyes of the average American, the presence of the U.S. military in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, we all know that there's a profit motive there too, just like there's a profit motive right. behind the expansion of the carceral state mm. and Im the immigration detention universe. Um, there are very real corporate interests for the United States to be present militarily in regions of the world that are geostrategically important, either because of their natural resources or because of their position on the map. Um, so the narrative of the omnipresent uh, and ever-threatening terrorist security threat, right? The, the, the narrative of the menacing Muslim is essential to justifying and maintaining U.S. presence overseas. Uh, without it, I think a large portion of the American public might start to question the necessity of these foreign interventions and the projection mm. of American power for so mm. many years in distant lands. Um, so, so I think ignoring that connection kind of misses what's driving a lot of this, because it's not driven by, like, the reality of a of a threat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the FBI's own statistics pretty clearly indicate that, you know, you're much more likely to be shot and killed by a white supremacist in this country yeah. than to fall victim to any kind of Muslim-identified terrorist, right? Um, but the differential treatment, I think, and, and this isn't, you know, again, this isn't like driven by any kind of like centralized conspiracy. It's just because people's interests and the incentives are, are such that, yeah, it pays to work on these security issues. So of course it's gonna be in the interest of everyone from like your line level FBI agent to a prosecutor uh, to, to, to work on a splashy terrorism case because that maximizes your chances of promotion. Um, mm -hmm. It's gonna be in the interest of the FBI director to talk about that because you know, yeah. he or she is more likely to get you know, congressional dollars that way, you know, maximum funding for their agency. Um, but all of that is in service to a foreign policy agenda that you know, has very little to do with the well-being of your average American citizen. And it's got much more to do with the maximization of corporate profits, yeah. right? right. Um, and, so, and the same holds for you know, in, the incarceration in this country and how that's driven by profit. The same holds f for immigration detention and how you know, companies like GEO have lobbied very successfully to, to have like, minimum yeah. quotas of immigration detention beds filled. Um, 
And that's really interesting to me because it was at, wasn't till the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City bombings, mm-hmm. for example, that we had like the 1996 laws for immigration. So it's this is a domestic terrorist attack committed by two white American yeah. army affiliated uh, yeah, yeah. people. And um, and then you have like the biggest laws written in, the, in recent history um, that disproportionately impact immigrants of color. Right. So it's it's. And like you just said, um, like the greatest threat to most people today is actually like terror and violence from white supremacists in this country. And so um, I just I guess if we could talk more about what it means for all of the like, what does all of this mean? Like, how is it that um, when we see this violence enacted by white people, by by white supremacists in particular, um, our, our government's reaction has always been to to hurt communities of color, hurt immigrant communities. and yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Like the uh, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, IRA, IRA, which was the other sort of law in that pair that passed in '96. I mean, that was Clinton. That was Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and and those laws, as, as you said, Daria Lisa, were um, infinitely harmful to immigrant communities, and also you know, to incarcerated people, whether or not they're immigrants, right? Right. Whether or not they're citizens who happen to be mostly or disproportionately people of color. So limiting access to habeas corpus, for example, Mm -hmm. for people who are incarcerated, that that happened in 96 as well. Um, And, you know, I see see it a lot like, I mean, if we're we're just kind of like narrowly looking at it through like the American political like analysis lens, like, you know, Clinton was like horse trading and, you know, had, you know, and he was really a centrist. Right. Uh, and, you know, had a set of priorities where he felt that, okay, if he gave that up, maybe he'd get something he cared about more. The same thing happened under Obama. Mm. This is how Obama became the, known as the deporter-in-chief because he thought in the back of his mind, probably like his c- political calculus was that, you know, if he um, proved to the other side, to the Republicans, that he was tough on immigration, that they might come to the table on comprehensive immigration reform, that they might be reasonable with him on other things that he cared about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that didn't pan out. His right. calculus was completely off. He ended up deporting more people than you know any previous president, and not getting really anything right. that he hoped for in in return. Um, so, so I think, you know, I think the fact that um, whenever there is a, a moment of like perceived or real national crisis, um, the 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 bill, so to speak, gets picked up by people of color mm-hmm. for that. You know, that's par for the course, right? I mean, that's that's what the United States is built on. Right. And I don't claim to sort of fully understand or be able to predict how that's going to play out. Yeah. But I'm never surprised when it play out, plays out that way, just sort of from my, um, you know, understanding of, of the way U.S. history has, has proceeded. But again, I don't say that to be defeatist. I, I, think, I think there is a lot of hope and room for change. Uh, but mostly lying outside of, you know, the formal mechanisms of, like, mm-hmm. the courts, for example. Not to say the courts are useless. Like, I am an attorney. I use the courts with my students and my colleagues and with the organizations and the movements that we support. But being strategic about it, understanding, you know, how you can leverage the courts, how you can leverage the media, and most importantly, uh, you know, how you can support the kind of mobilization that can you know, shift power. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really the locus of politics for people of color and and um, and marginalized people in this country. That's been how change that's been beneficial yeah. to those constituencies has always happened here and probably anywhere. 
Um, and so I think the, our role, like as legal organizations, is to figure out, okay, how can we position ourselves to support that? Um, and how can we subordinate whatever we do in the courts to like priorities and strategies that are identified uh, by, by those movements and, uh, you know, who, who are accountable to, uh, to the people who bear the brunt of these policies. Um, so, so I, again, it's, it's a different kind of, um, yeah, it's a different timeline. So I, I don't know if like we're going to make a dent in the immediate future, but, but I'm pretty hopeful that like longer term things, things will, will change for, for the better if, if we keep at it. Um, and, and this is a moment like of, you know, like a lot of my students were, have been deeply disheartened by sort of the Trump administration and the constant assault on immigrants and people of color. Yeah. But I try to stress for them that, yeah, like it is a moment of perhaps unprecedented in, in the modern area, era uh, of, of unprecedented openness and possibility and opportunity on the right. And we're seeing that through Trump and otherwise. But the flip side to that coin is that it's also a, an, an era of like unprecedented in the modern era, like openness and opportunity on the left. Like by the same token, the fact that they were able to throw out a lot of the rules of the game and a lot of the norms in order to advance their far-right agenda. Mm. Well, that's actually a benefit to those of us who are mobilizing on the left as well because th those rules of the game and those norms were also constraints on us. Mm. Right. And so, so that's what I try to stress, that like it is also a moment of openness and opportunity for us on the left as well. Should we find a way to seize it and mobilize to advance the rights of people who are socioeconomically marginalized, who are racially marginalized and otherwise. Would, would abolish ICE as a movement have been as successful under the Obama administration? It's, it's yet, to be, yet to be seen. Like yeah. Many, many liberals, right, are even uh, are jumping on that as, which you'd never expect. That would have been a non-starter yeah. under the Obama administration. Yeah. You know? right. yeah, I mean, even things like talking about socialism mm. yeah. as openly as some have in the political mainstream. And again, I, I don't have a reductive understanding of politics that limits it to the electoral politics of yeah. the United States, right? Politics is much broader than that. Sure. But even in that narrow field, right, of U.S. electoral politics, they're talking about abolishize. They're talking about police accountability in unprecedented ways in the modern, yeah. era, modern era. They're talking about socialism. And, you know, those things would have been unfathomable under, under Obama, you mm. know, under, under Clinton, under Bush. Um, again, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but, but I think a lot, of, a lot of it is in our hands collectively now to try to do, do what we can because it is a moment of, of openness on both sides. So that's fraught with risk but also opportunity. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us on the Just Deportees. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. That was our show. The Just Deportees is the official podcast of the social anatomy of the deportation regime, a research working group based out of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. You can find out more at www.sadrjohnjay.com. My name is Nick Rodrigo. This episode was produced and edited by myself and Ange Firestone. Our music was produced by Star One. Financial assistance for this podcast series was provided by the Office for the Advancement of Research at John Jay College. We'll see you next time.